you would turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James began this chapter asking some questions, a couple questions. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Now, as we've been reading through this letter, you know, we, we get a picture of that early church or churches the readers to whom he writes, it seems to be um, a church or churches that look a little, very little different than the world around them. Um, there's some amazing things that he says about them. He uses very strong language. He, he calls some things out. The infighting that exists among them, the gossiping, the jealousy, Social ladder climbing at the expense of others. There's hypocrisy, there's duplicity that's called out. Law breaking, favoritism, doubting, just to name some of the causes of the quarrels and fights within that body. You know, those, those churches, they don't seem to give the impression of a light put up on a stand or a city on a hill. Rather, they give the impression of like Bunyan's Vanity Fair. Yet, and yet, these, these churches, they are the fair bride of Christ. We can never forget that when we're reading this. They are the fair bride of Christ, whom he will make ready for his return when he comes for them. There's great hope in that. For us, as we read this letter and see ourselves in it, well, the truth, the hard truth, is that it truly, if God were to expose the attitudes of the hearts of the people in his churches throughout the centuries, such selfishness, such hypocrisy, it could still be seen warring within the members, within Christ's members. Even in this church, beloved, If you haven't figured it out by now, you're a work in progress. Amen? You're a work in progress. And if you don't see some of yourself here being challenged by James's very sharp rhetoric, then you should be concerned, I think, for your spirituality. I would wonder if there is a pulse there. Maybe just even a faint pulse. He does not pull punches in our passage today in parts. And then it's very encouraging in parts as well. Our passage is to be understood in the context of the same relational conflict that was began in verse 1 of chapter 4. These worldly pleasures that rage within us, within the body. It's a worldliness that seeks to befriend and lead us from Christ. It has a purpose, to lead us from Christ. Tempting us to cheat on the most high God whose name is Jealous. To commit acts of treason against his love. That is its purpose, worldliness. Leaving the fearful Christian asking, what must I do? What must I do? This is not a safe place to be. And it isn't. Well, thankfully, James tells us what God expects us to do. In the context of the spiritual adultery that was be committed by the church, committed by you and by myself, in need of much grace, given much more grace, he writes, 
Picking up in verse 6 of chapter 4. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. God gives more grace. More grace to battle the seductions of the world. He will complete in us what he has started. Let that be an encouragement to you. And he will do this in ways that are antithetical to the wisdom of the world. To our own natural understandings as well. Now I have two two primary, two main points from our passage that I want to share with you regarding what God expects from us. How he will squeeze the worldliness out of you. We are called to, number one, submit to God in devotion. Submit to God in devotion. And I see this, we see this in verses 7 and 8. And secondly, submit to God in humility. In verses 9 and 10, where I'll be focusing on that point. But first, but first, in verse 6, we are given a biblical principle. James writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, as you might have noticed in your Bible's footnotes, James is quoting here. Scripture, Proverbs 3, verse 34, from the Septuagint, what he's quoting from. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, this principle that he gives in quotes here, along with the command that he gives in the first sentence, sentence of verse 7, it's, they both they serve as the overarching theme of this passage. In fact, they are a very key theme throughout his entire letter. What God feels about pride, and, and we must humble ourselves before him. Well, God opposes the proud. He opposes the arrogant heart. He actively resists the proud. He's not passive in this. You know, pride is a very foolish thing. It's a foolish thing for any of God's creation to possess. It was the cause of the devil's initial downfall and continues to be his chiefest sin. And although it is a natural thing for fallen, unregenerate man not only to possess pride but to feed it, It is a great sin for Christians who are redeemed from this sin, sanctified from this sin. Plainly, though, and through a process that God sanctifies us, that can be very painful at times for us believers. But we trust him to do that work. He does. You know, a Christian's feeding of his or her pride is therefore not only foolish, it is most unprofitable. Gains us nothing. The ground that the Christian thinks he's gaining in what the King James Version would call vainglory, I like the way it calls that, describes it. If we think we're gaining any ground, exalting ourselves. We're we're standing on shifting sand. That ground is not stable. It's untenable. Especially for us Christians. Because at least it seems at least it seems to me that God more quickly corrects his children for their good than he punishes the unbeliever. Now, judgment comes to the church first. It is very unprofitable pride for us. 
And it's also quite dangerous because God so opposes it. It says in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 17, that the Lord hates it. He hates it. In fact, it is an abomination to him. Therefore, it is an extreme hatred and detestation of his. God will not abide it in unregenerate man. It becomes his downfall, right? Pride goeth before the fall. We know this. Most people can quote that, even though we don't believe it. And God most certainly will not suffer it in his children. He says in Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. God opposes our pride, and he does it in various ways. Sometimes, sometimes, and these are the most dramatic times, it seems, he opposes it immediately and profoundly. Kind of like what he did with Herod. Now, this is an extreme example. But when the people lauded Herod, shouting, the voice of a God and not a man, his punishment was immediate. It was profound. Now, a little interesting note here. Josephus notes on this. He says that he was wearing... A, a gown or a, a cloak that had a lot of silver woven into it that would make it shine as if he shine like an angel. Well, the Bible goes on to says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Maybe he was trying to come off as a God. Sometimes God's resisting, his opposing our pride is by hindering our purposes. Sometimes we pray for our leaders like we do every Sunday, and sometimes we humbly ask God to do this very thing. When it is known that the policies of our civil leaders are abominable, that for the sake of his people, he would hinder them that their plans would be foiled. Have your foolish plans ever been foiled before? I know mine have. and I thank God for it in the long run. Sometimes he hinders our plans, our pride, when he opposes us. Sometimes God's resisting our pride is by confusing the counsel that the proud receives. Now, this is a recipe for impending humiliation for the prideful because they don't know when it's coming. They don't know when it's coming when they take advice from men whose counsel has been confused by God. Now, history is replete with stories of men taking bad counsel and suffering for it. Now, consider what it did for young King Rehoboam when he refused the wise counsel of his late father's advisors. He scorned it. But instead, he took the greedy counsel of his fellow youth. Then what happened? Well, God used that event to divide the kingdom of Israel. Sometimes it affects more than just you. It can affect a kingdom. You know, often God resists our pride by taking away the very object of our pride. You know, riches, status, you know, whatever it may be. You know, it could even be something that is good, right? That we take pride in. In a bad way. You know, whatever it is that we have placed our pride in is, an, is something that God may take away. And it'd be a blessing to do so if our hearts won't be turned from it. Sometimes it's even one's religion. You know, think of what happened to ancient Israel in their exile. They lost the opportunity for temple worship. It was a very 
very, besides humbling time for them, confusing time on how they should worship him. Sometimes God takes away those things that are the objects of our pride. Now, there are many ways that God opposes and resists our pride. But why? Why does he do so? Why does he do it so vehemently? It is because, again, like we learned last time, he is a jealous God. This is what we got to understand about pride because it steals our heart's affections. You know, our worship, it, it turns inward instead of outward to God alone. Thomas Manton, he noted that the sin of pride is, is it's different from other sins because there is a kind of bravery in it. It, it sets itself against God. Now, that's foolish as well. And not only that, as other sins can be mortified through the grace of God and, and decreased, pride just seems to grow. This just seems to grow. It's a very persistent thing. And we cannot leave it unguarded. Yes, beloved, pride is a very dangerous thing. But praise be to God that he provides a sure remedy for it. He does. God gives grace to the humble. In fact, he gives more grace. He does the opposite for his child for the faithful believer than in what he does to the unbeliever. He opposes the, everything about the unbeliever. But he gives more grace to his faithful children. So, the apostle commands in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Obey God. Obey God by submitting to him. The apostle does his readers a great service in this passage because he tells them, he, he tells us how we must go about submitting ourselves to God. You know, humbling ourselves before him. Which brings me to my first point, that we should submit to God in devotion. I want to read verses 7 and 8 again. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded we are to submit to God in our devotion to him and James gives us four ways we are to do this you, you can simply underline the verbs in this passage yeah, and you can see how he lays it all out. We are to be resisting, drawing near, cleansing, and purifying. Let's go and see how these should be applied. Each one of these. First, resisting. Uh, these first two commands that he gives, you know, resisting and drawing near, they're coupled with a promise. There's a promise that goes with them. Now, regarding the first one, you are to resist the devil. And in doing so, God promises the devil will flee from you. Notice, notice that God's resting, or resisting rather, that his resisting, it's far more powerful, far more effective than our resisting. You know, God's plans to resist pride in our hearts, they are never foiled. And the best that we can trust in is for the devil to flee. But God's sovereign power crushes. We still trust in his strength. You know, some day, some glorious day, God will crush Satan in all of his arrogance and insolence right under your feet. And it will be God's doing. Someday. In your resisting, 
in your resisting the devil, you must not yield a single step to him. In baseball, tie goes to the runner, right? I hope you know that metaphor. It goes to the runner. But in our desire to resist the devil, the tie will go to him. It will. You know, any acquiescence on our part, uh, any slight submission to the devil's will, if only even for a moment, you've lost ground. He will instantly and powerfully press his, his advantage against you. And you know this, dear friends, you know this. That's why it's so important that you are capturing your thoughts. Just as soon as the thought of sin enters your mind, immediately, without a moment's hesitation, refuse to willingly linger on the evading thought of sin. Resist that thought right away. Fill your mind with good things. Do not be so foolish either, beloved. Do not be so foolish to to venture to pick a fight with the devil. Our command is to resist him, not to go looking to pick a fight with him. Trust me, you take up your cross every day. You deny yourself each day, and the devil will come looking for you. He is far too powerful for you to take him on alone. You will lose if you try to pick a fight with him by inviting his sinful influence. What does that look like, picking a fight with him, inviting his sinful influence? You've done it. You've done it before. You know what it's like. You tell yourself that you will not fail this time. You will not fall headlong into sin. That you will only only take a, a, a tiny taste of it. Just a passing glance at it. You tell yourself that you can resist the urge to cross over into full participation. But at this point, you don't see. You don't see that you're already caught in his web. And that crafty beast, he won't tempt you by taking on the whole city at once. He is, he is satisfied with a mere breach in the wall. He's an old student at this. He knows the taking of the city will usually come if he can just breach the wall. Beloved, you're resisting the devil. It must be obeyed by receiving God's strength. That's how you do it. It can only be through Christ our Lord that you can have victory here. And sometimes wisdom will require you to get the help of others. You know, brothers and sisters praying for you. You know, for that ingrained sin that has found its way to burrow away, burrow in underneath your flesh. You may need the help of someone to hold you accountable. You might need that. Besides the power God has ordained in righteous prayer, the fear of disappointment, disappointing a friend who is praying for you, that can be a powerful deterrent. But, but pray, dear Christian, pray that disappointing the Lord, displeasing him, would be your chief deterrent to sin. I've unfortunately seen too often how the shame of sin can wear off on a person. 
and the confessing of sin to a friend seems to be a declining consequence. Pray that the Lord will show you the true ugliness of the sin, that you would be protected from trading one sin for another. Even though our enemy, the devil, even though he is a very powerful enemy, it is vital that you do not fear him. As Manton wrote, he said, he has no power to force us, the devil. He has no power to force us, only the skill to persuade us. If you give in fear to him, if you give in to fear to him, it gives him an advantage. The Lord is our strength to resist him in all ways. You have the tried and true weapons of faith, that shield of faith. You have the tried and true weapons of faith. You have the word of God. You have prayer. You even have past experience to draw upon and therefore be wise you resist him you resist the devil with a sober mind one that rests on God not incapacitated by pride not misled by anger or wanton pleasure you resist him in vigilance The devil is always ready. So you always be ready in prayer. And yes, you resist him by being united with your brothers and sisters, caring for one another, praying for one another. Resisting the devil, resisting sin, that's never going to end this side of heaven. It's not. The end of having to resist the devil is something that we are invited, however, to long for someday. Longing for Christ's return. It is a good thing to do. We are commanded to do this. Longing for heaven. So then, like I mentioned before, it's a command with a promise. What is with the promise that if you resist the devil, that he will flee from you? You know, sometimes it sure doesn't feel like he's fleeing. Rather, sometimes he renews the battle. And he wins at a second or a third attempt. Be diligent, beloved of Christ. Be diligent. Be vigilant. Know that every denial is a great discouragement to the devil. Manton wrote, he said, the devil, I love this, the devil is like a dog. A dog that stands looking and waving his tail, ready to receive something from those who sit at the table. You know what that looks like. But if nothing is thrown to him, he goes away. What Satan looks for is an angry word, an unclean glance, maybe at your phone, gestures of wrath, a short fuse. He's looking for that. Or from some form of discontentment. But if he finds none of these, he's discouraged. There's hope. You know, after winning a battle, after resisting him, that devil may continue to trouble you, which is why Peter tells you that you must always be alert. If you continue to resist him, he will surely lose. Dear Christian, you have Christ's full interest. 
And though the devil comes at you time and time again, he can never overcome you without your consent. Grow in godliness and the knowledge of the Lord. Even though this going through this conflict is a pain, even though it's troublesome, you're resisting him, it brings you much spiritual growth and opportunities to see Christ's power at work in you, as well as a deeper trust in him. The Lord's not going to waste an opportunity. The next three commands in these two verses you have towards submitting to God are found in verse 8. You are to be drawing near, cleansing, and purifying. First, drawing near. Now, this is the second command that's coupled with a promise. You are to draw near to God, draw nigh unto God. And in doing so, God will draw near to you. That's the promise. And praise God that he desires us and wants to be in close communion. Wants us to be in close communion with him. Do the, the promises of fleeing devils and God drawing near seem like promises for some other gifted and blessed saint? But not for you? Does that ever feel that way? Seem that way? Men like Martin Luther, who wrote of dismissing the devil's accusations. Know this. God's promises here, these two promises, the devil fleeing and God drawing near, they're not for a special few of his children. It is for all of his children, including you, today. Be bold, tender Lamb of God. Be bold. Be bold in your faith to believe. You're going to find strength in that. You must approach God. You must approach Him. It is only then that you're going to be able to resist the devil. Numerous times, God, He called to Israel, called to them to return to Him. You know, the command for us to draw near to him is, is similar. The prophet Isaiah, he tells us that God dwells with the contrite and lowly spirit. In Hebrews, we read that you can draw near to the Lord in confidence where you will find mercy and grace. But drawing near to the Lord, it must be done in faith. James has already talked about this. It must be done in faith without doubting. Not a mere show of it. You're fooling yourself thinking that God doesn't know what's going on in your heart. Draw near with a heart that is established in truth and in full assurance of faith. Pray for this if you lack it. Be bold in your belief. God's command to draw near to him is a command to come to know his word, to study it, and to come to him in sincere prayer. You know, worshiping God with a sincere heart, it's clearly the manner of drawing near to God that James has in mind when he wrote this. It is very reasonable to expect our primary means of coming to him involve the ministry of the word, the reading of it, the, the hearing of the preaching and teaching of it. And, it. and it involves receiving grace through prayer. I want to use myself and his example here. I have found it perplexing how finding time for reading and studying comes relatively easier than finding time for prayer. And be honest. Be honest with yourself. As I 
strive to be honest with myself, it's not the finding of the time that we struggle with, it's the taking of it. You will always do that which you value most in a given moment. I thank you, brother, for bringing that to my mind a long time ago. It is true. You can't escape it. I want to labor a bit here on the reasonableness of prayer and drawing near to God, since it seems to be a struggle for so many. Admittedly, I... I try to take advantage to go into some detail about prayer when in, whenever a text hints at it because I find it so encouraging for myself. In my own walk with the Lord as I prepare to, to teach or preach on it. God has ordered prayer as a priority in your life. Interesting that we were talking about time just a moment ago because that's a good way you'll notice if it is a priority. The time it fills. Christ, he exemplified it. He took the time, the precious time that he had to be hard at it. He toiled in it. And he exalted the work of prayer in a disciple's life. He once told his disciples a parable, the the parable of the persistent widow. Do you remember that one? The effect, basically, the effect that should be drawn from that parable is that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And not lose heart. They go together. In God's ordering, you may find... In Romans 12, verse 12, that you are to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is reasonable that you be constant in prayer because you are such a needy Independent creature. We all are. Every hour of your life brings with it needs that must be supplied, or you will suffer and die. Also, also, we must be constant in it because you are so sinful and unworthy. We all are. There is much sin to confess to seek God's forgiveness. You have been given the privilege by the Lord God Almighty to enter his throne room without fear of rejection. Not like Queen Esther who had to wonder if that scepter would be extended to her. You know, with such mercy with that mercy invites you freely to come and make known your desires, it would be rather most unreasonable to not take advantage of that privilege. Another reason for being constant in prayer and being hard at it at times and toiling in it is that your days are numbered. You will stand before God someday. Tomorrow, maybe. Accountable for all your thoughts, words, actions. Yes, not condemned. Praise God. Praise Jesus. But accountable. Can you afford? Can you afford not to seek His willing grace through the ministry of prayer in your life. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Don't mistake this to mean that you are the first cause in this. God is the first and great cause in all of providence. But your active walking away from God, you're not drawing near to him means you are seeking something or someone 
other than God, likely seeking the world in some form, which is adulterous. As one commentator I read put it, praying will make you leave sinning, or sinning will make you leave praying. And to carry on, prayerless will make you find God's rod rather than his peaceful presence. Drawing near to him with a sincere heart, it acknowledges him as the source of your refuge and strength, and it honors him. It honors him. In order to obey the next two commands, cleanse your hands and purify the heart, you must be active in prayer. Why do we need to cleanse our hands? Why do you need to cleanse your hands? Because they've been made filthy and sticky with the sin that you've been handling. Why purify your heart? Because it has divided loyalties. It hasn't been true. Drawing near to God implies that some work must be done. Some action has to be taken. The active choice to put away sin is being called for in that resisting. Acknowledging your waywardness is key. And in case you have any doubt about your need to put away your sin and that you have a tendency to wander, wander constantly. See how James addresses his reader as being a sinner and double-minded. James is calling them sinners and being double-minded. Him calling this wasn't necessarily only a criticism of, of their behavior, of their actions, but it was an acknowledgement of their corrupt nature, their great need. Cleansing and purifying your hands and heart requires you to forsake all sinful ways, even those respectable sins. It requires a commitment to be sincere in mortifying sin and killing it. You see, God... He hides his eyes and does not listen to the prayers of those who have filthy hands and hearts. You know, the cleansing of the hands it focuses on, on dealing honestly with sin. The purifying of the heart it focuses on faithfulness. God's faithfulness is demonstrated by cleansing us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. 1 John 1 9. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You know, purifying your heart demands complete allegiance to God. We talked about this last time. Complete allegiance, not an ounce of leeway. There cannot be a mixture of worldly allegiance in your submission to God. That wouldn't be submission. But if you stumble... In your striving, God gives more grace. Only keep striving. In cleansing your hands, you must be willing to forsake every evil way and strive daily to do so. To have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And in doing so, there must also be godly sorrow for sin. Which takes me to my second point. Submit to God in humility. In verse 9, God commands the penitent and saved sinner to be grieving and lamenting. Let's read that. 
one more time. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now this sounds like nonsense to the world. It's a psychiatrist's recipe for disaster. I once read in J. Adams' book, Competent to Counsel, that he discovered that it was the honest and legitimate facing and admitting of one's wrongdoing that was necessary to begin healing from the effects of sin on a troubled mind. Now, I may not describe perfectly the scene here, as I recall what I read, but he described of a patient in a mental hospital that had become catatonic. You know, catatonic in his state of being, not speaking, uh, staring off into the distance, that kind of thing. Teams of psychiatrists had tried to, tried to coddle him and, and coax him into communicating with him, but it was to no avail. He remained catatonic. But when a newthetic approach to counseling, that is a, a confronting sin approach, was introduced, things began to change. The doctors, in applying this newthetic approach, would not let the patient off the hook by simply being non-responsive. They inquired of his recent past, from him and discover that he had done something wrong, something that he was rather embarrassed to admit. He couldn't face it. He found it much easier to go into a catatonic state than, than face his family for his wrongdoing. The man's refusal to grieve and lament over his sin had caused him, in him, to run away from reality. Run away from everything. Now, I know this is an extreme example of what guilt can do to a person, may do in a person, but it happens. You know, burying sinfulness, pushing it down inside, not experiencing godly sorrow for it, it could go another way as well. And often it does. You know, such a person could not feel the burden of guilt eventually. You know, sin without the fear of consequence becomes easier and easier over time. Beloved, I think this is one of the scariest positions a person may find himself in. No longer feeling the shame of sin. So often, it's a sign of judgment from God on a person or a people to continue in their sin and not even blushing for it. Jeremiah, if you remember when we walked through Jeremiah, he likened Judah's behavior to that of a prostitute. He did it more than once. Of a prostitute that would not blush. I would feel no shame for her sin. In your obedience to submit to God, you are to consider your sinful tendencies. You are to consider them hard. You know, contemplate their gross rebellion before the most holy God in heaven. And with that, be wretched and mourn and weep, he says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. The world, however, would have you be concerned for your self-esteem. Of, of course it does. Of course it does. It wants you to protect your, your pridefulness. Makes lots of money on it. Pastor Wright read Psalm 117 in our call to worship at the start of the service. I want to read it again. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles because I want you to see this. Psalm 117.
Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. How was it that the psalmist truly knew that the Lord was, is steadfast in his love? That his faithfulness endures forever? With such power and confidence? I, I tell you, beloved, this is best seen in heart-wrenching contrition. And pouring your heart out to God. Holding nothing back. He sees it all already. And being wretched in grief over your sin. And mourning and weeping over it. Seeing how despicably unworthy you are. In your filthy rags of self-righteousness. And feeling your heart breaking over your duplicity. And abandoning your friend in Christ. You know, aghast in your proclivity to sin. How it consumes you so. Being like that dog that returns to his vomit. And in this state of unworthy awareness, letting the truth that the Holy Spirit has taught you about Jesus come and rescue you about his willing sacrifice to atone for your sin his mocking endured while abandoned by those who are closest to him his body given for you his blood shed for you for you great sinner And how he has utterly saved you and will deliver you to an eternal inheritance beyond your wildest dreams. The psalmist in you will be most able to see that his love is steadfast, that his faithfulness is enduring forever. It endures your testing of him by your sin when you are most miserable in a grieving heart over your sin. And there is no space for laughter when contemplating your sin. Laughing is cruel to a grieving heart. And your sin is, it's not a trial to endure. It's not a trial to be thankful for. It's not something to be sittering at a joy for. It calls for grief and lamenting. It's not as the proud Pharisee who likes to make that outward display of grief. It is a solemn dread of treason against the God of your salvation. Be wretched, mourn, lament. It cuts like a knife. And unlike a worldly sorrow that would soon be over its grief if reputation or statuses or riches were, were restored, it seeks restoration only in a forgiving father. And is satisfied with that. Contemplating how pride abounds in us, even after great striving and sanctification, it should cause us much grief. Now, truly, how wonderful heaven will be, where we will be most high, yet most humble. It is hard for my corrupt heart to reconcile this heavenly truth. You are to submit to God in humility by grieving, lamenting, and lastly, you are to be effacing. You are to be self-effacing. 
Your submission to God in humility is seen in humbling yourself before the Lord. To humble yourself is to be self-effacing. It means to make yourself low. You know, to assume the lowest seat in the room. You know, desiring only your master's invitation to advance. It is to take initiative in your own humbling. Not forcing the father's hand to correct pride in you. But if, if he must and does, then taking it with humility. You know, this final command we have here, it's much like the overarching command in verse 7, to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What we have, therefore, in this passage is what you would call an inclusio. We've mentioned it before. It's a, literally, a literary means to emphasize a point. It's like bookends on a shelf with all the content, the particulars in between. That's what we have here. Verse 7 commands you to submit to God, and verse 7 commands you to humble yourself before God. And then we have, again, those particulars in between. There must be a deep and lowly prostration of the Spirit before God, making yourself low. Spurgeon once asked, he said, If your heart, if your heart has never been broken, how can God bind it up? If it was never wounded, how can he heal it? You know, make your following, make your following of the Spirit of God easy for him, so to speak. You don't kick against the goats here. You know, digging in your heels and and require the whip or the, the bit and bridle to make you move in the right direction. You start by being impressible by being malleable, sensitive, easily affected by the word of God. You know, scripture has enough examples of what happens to the lazy, forgetful, and stubborn servant. To humble yourself before the Lord is not to grieve him. You won't be grieving him when you're doing this. It is pleasing him. And it means to recognize your own spiritual poverty. To acknowledge, consequently, your desperate need of God's help in all areas. And to submit to his commanding will for your life. And it's very well exemplified in parables like the tax collector. Who was very conscious of his sin. He called out to God for mercy. And Jesus pronounces him justified. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter does the same thing in his letter. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. It is under his mighty hand. His mighty hand is over you. He is ready to strike the arrogant in heart. And there's no middle ground here. Like Pastor Wright talked about last week. Same thing applies here. There's no middle ground. You, there's only pride or there's humility. There's only obeying self or obeying God. You need, you need to be acknowledging him in all your ways and all your thoughts. Because God commands, you shall have no other gods before me. Or besides me. Now, humbling yourself before God, it leads to that final promise of God exalting you. Now, some of you may be fearful of any exaltation for yourself. You know, fearing that you're going to turn it into something prideful. And that's a healthy concern to have. But not in this case, beloved. The exaltation that James and Peter and Christ refer to it's a, an exalted state, an exalted state of being, not an exalted ego. You should fear man's praise for what you might do with it and in inflating your ego, but you should welcome 
even seek God's praise for yourself. You know, someday you're going to be glorified. You're going to be glorified someday. Someday you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the honor that you should be seeking. Honor from the Lord. You know, even now we can benefit in an exalted state when we humble ourselves before the Lord because it is only in humility before God that we truly enjoy him. And to to enjoy, enjoy God and to glorify him, that's our chief end, isn't it? Concluding here, you know, beloved, you're in the world. We are in the world. We can't escape it. We're not to be of it, though. And our heart's natural leaning is to take pleasure in it. So that's the continual battle that we're going to have to forge on. It's not for the weary, although you will feel and do feel weary at times. So gather strength from the one from where it may be found. Christ said in John 7, verse 37, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is an invitation, not only for the unregenerate sinner to receive salvation, but it is to the child of God. It's to you, beloved, to find strength and refuge, to carry on in this hostile world. And even though you strive to walk humbly, Know that you walk as victors in Christ. That Christ will soon crush Satan under your feet. You have nothing for which to be ashamed for. No matter how mean your position here is in society. Not as long as you remain humbly his. For you to act like the world and insist upon your own way is is to put yourself on a course for a very sore correction. That's why James so ardently urges us to reject the wisdom of the world and the passion of the flesh, to resist the devil and the wisdom of the world. And with that, receive his promise of intimacy and exaltation.